Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I am Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love the power of story, the power of journey, and I truly believe that we are all a compilation of the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell ourselves. I work as a mental performance coach right outside of Washington, D.C., where I get to work with all kinds of interesting people and interesting organizations. And over the years, I've been privy to some amazing stories, and I've learned about how those stories have impacted people's mindsets. So this podcast will aim to go deep with interesting people who consider themselves to be performers, and we'll find out about how their stories have impacted their mindsets and how they've developed those mindsets for performance. We'll dig deep to find out how they see the world. We'll also dig deep into how they see themselves as performers in whatever it is that they do. As we go beyond the surface with them, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Today we go beyond the surface with Coach Jessica Kern. Coach Kern is the head women's basketball coach at Tennessee State. As you'll hear, she's had quite a journey to get to Tennessee State. Uh, She's had a lot of stops as a coach, uh, and she also has a lot of experience as an athlete. She played professionally overseas, and she also ran track in college at Penn State. So really fascinating story in that she did not play Division I college basketball, yet she became a professional basketball player and now coaches collegiately uh, with some of the best basketball players in the world. So Coach Kern, I think you'll like the way that she thinks about the world, how conscientious she is, how she strings words together. She has a really powerful way with words. And just her overall passion for what she gets to do on a daily basis and how she looks at sports and how she looks at teaching young people. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the surface with Coach Jessica Kern. So Jess, why don't you start? Tell me about what life was like for you as a child. Just tell me about your family, upbringing, uh, where you grew up, all that good stuff. Yeah, um, I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, My dad and my mom are both in Milwaukee. Um, I'm biracial. Um, My mother's African-American. She is originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, My dad is originally from, well, Milwaukee, way of Germany. Um, And they met. um, It's sort of kind of funny. Um, They met at a time where being an interracial couple wasn't really the coolest thing to do. Um, and then here I come. So, um, but Milwaukee's home for me. Um, my parents are divorced. Um, I, it's crazy because even in my recruiting spiel, I say that I think, um, you know, now we have to meet young people where they are, you know, it's not typical necessarily to have two parent households or have unconventional relationships, um, for people who are, for lack of a better word, you know, mentors, um, people of guidance and things of that nature. So, um, grew up in Milwaukee. Um, like I said, my parents, I came from a divorced household. My parents were phenomenal parents. Um, you know, you've got your qualms like with anything else, but extremely supportive in everything that I wanted to do. Um, when did, when did mom and dad get divorced? Funny. Okay. A mom and dad got divorced when I was two. The process took 10 years. Wow. So it did not conclude until I was a freshman in high school which is sort of kind of crazy. But again, people ask me, you know, um, why do I coach? Um, And I coach because really coaching for me is just a different form of motivation. Um, It's a different platform. To me, it's really not just X's and O's. It's sort of kind of motivating people to do things they didn't think they could do. 
Um, but I think in its totality, when you become an adult, you realize your journey and your walk is a platform to assist other people. And so, um, I use that. I definitely use that in recruitment because there's a lot of young people who are trying to figure it out just like I was. Um, and so I sort of kind of use that as my way in to say, you know, we're, we're not as different as you think we are. And so the, during those 10 years, you, you seem to say hey, I had a great sort of upbringing, but was there drama in the house? Like what were you witnessing? I mean, that's, that's a long time for two people that realize that they're not supposed to be together. Well, you have to, you know, you keep in mind, um, you know, being a single parent now is sort of like, hey, I'm just a single parent. Um, but in the 80s, for a Caucasian male to get custody of an African-American little girl was rare, is extremely rare. And so that is why it was so extended for so long. Um, basically, two parents fighting for the love of their child, um, which is key. Um, and then fighting a system that at that time was a little tainted. Um, and I say that in its crazy hindsight because I am a single mom. Um, but typically at that time, the child just went to the mother. And so that is why the process took so long, um, because there were several unconventional measures to see what's best for Jessica. Just like anything else, um, I, think, I think I am so conscious with the way that I approach people um, and feelings, because as a child coming up, feeling that you're often in the middle and have to pick a side, you become extremely conscious of knowing the responsibility of your words. And so I think growing up, let's just say I had to grow up just a little faster than probably what I wanted to. But I was also, when I say I had an amazing childhood, because my extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, never really allowed it to go left. Mm. So, um, I sort of use that. I use it as a platform. Um, my father um, got custody of me, um, you know, along that journey. Um, and again, caused a bit of division between my mother and I. But hindsight, when you get old enough, um, and I say this all the time as coaches, we have a responsibility when young people get old enough to realize right and wrong. It is then that vulnerable stage that we have to mold um, and not allowing them to go completely left. So that's when I say I had a great childhood because I experienced things that, you know, a kid, I don't think even kids, you know, older kids that we get now never experienced. I did all the Disney worlds. I did all the camping. I did all the sports and I, I was able to do all those things in the midst of really what was a bunch of turmoil. Um, but I had really good family members that allowed me to be a kid, which I think is key. And I'd be remiss if I didn't dive into the interracial component because <laughs> You said I had to pick a side when it came to my mom and dad. Um, it's funny because I'm based out of Washington, D.C. Uh, and Logic is like uh, the rapper Logic for those of the, you that are listening. Like every kid that I'm around loves the rapper Logic. And yeah. for those that don't know, he raps, around, he raps about being interracial. And he happens to be pretty light-skinned. Um, and he talks about not letting that necessarily define who he is and that it yeah. does not necessarily have to be black or he doesn't necessarily have to be yeah. white and he doesn't need to be put into a sort of subset. Um, but for you growing up and saying, okay, do I pick mom? Do I pick dad? Where am I? Who do I lean more towards? And then also having the racial component of being biracial. And you talked about right from the get go, Hey, there are going to be people that just aren't cool with that back then. And heck, there are people that probably aren't cool with that now. I mean, let's be honest. There are people that aren't cool with that now. It's, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. Um, 
it took me the longest time to be okay with the skin I'm in. Let me say that, you know, um, again, in that time, you know, for people that are listening now, it may, it may not necessarily mean a hill of beans because we've got every type of reality show, every type of, you know, social media person that became famous because of embracing the skin. They're in. I mean, you have that now, but at the time uh, you, you were black, but you weren't black enough. Right. At that time, you and keep in mind, my, my dad, you know, came from a very urban background. So, you know, he had friends of all colors. So to him, it wasn't a big deal. But to be a white guy raising a black girl and, and questioning if you knew what you were doing was odd. You talk different. Your hair is different. You're, you, you can't get relaxers, but you also don't want to go to a Caucasian salon and get perms. You, you, skin care. You're in between. You know, everything was having to pick a side. And I sort of kind of realized early, which is crazy in all of this, you know, when you have to check that box, black, white, Hispanic, other. My dad always allowed me to click pick other until I decided what I wanted, really wanted to be. And I never understood why I had to put myself in a bubble. Um, hindsight, looking forward, it's sort of kind of what has set me apart in coaching is that I'm not necessarily mainstream. Like I'm okay with being a little bit different. I, I tell people all the time and I laugh. I'm, if you don't know my name, I'm the black girl with blonde hair. There's not another one of me, you know? And so that's what growing up was. It, it was a test of, are you urban enough? Uh, do you live in you know, live in suburbia? Does that make you better than? Do you go to a public school? Do you go to a private school? Even the fact that you had two parents in your life, you know, growing up in, and I went to a Milwaukee public school and I say this because I believe in the NPS school system. I do a camp every single year and I go back to young people and say like, hey, there's good stuff in urban environments, but sort of like breaking that mold of, you know, you don't have to fit in a box. That's not easy growing up as a kid. It's not. You get made fun of. You know, I, I have big lips. This was an issue for me. I didn't understand. I got teased about it. But then hindsight, you're older. People are getting injections to get this. Yeah. You know, so growing up was a really trying to figure it out kind of situation, you know. But the awesome part in all this, my family never made me choose. Yeah. And it's crazy. Even in recruitment, you see young women that look like you and you can always tell you can always tell either she's got a white mom or a white dad or vice versa uh, because, you know, that walk and um, you got to surround yourself with people that like care about you, despite what adults are going through, because let, let me make no qualms about this. Yeah. At one point, it got pretty ugly. Everybody's fighting for the love of a kid, you know. Um, to have to be in front of a judge. And, and again, and I, I've said this in other public speaking forums that I've done, um, to have to say, pick a, I need you to decide. Nobody wants to look at two parents and say, I love one more than the other because that's never the case. At, um, 12, people, at 12 years old, right? Like not at that's 16, rough. it's 12. Yeah, it's rough. But at, at some point, um, you're forced to make a big girl decision. Um, and so, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense, especially through my high school experience. Um, but as I got to college, it all began to make a little more sense to me, um, uh, for a young, for a young woman to say she never needs her mom is absolutely false. There's nobody but a mother that can teach you how to be a woman. My dad did his absolute best to do that. I will tell everybody and anybody he's at everything I do. Um, but things come full circle, you know, they eventually come full circle, but childhood for me was figuring out who I wanted to be and being okay with standing on it. So I would imagine that that wasn't easy for a 
six, eight, 10, 12 year old Jess, like we can look back now and appreciate what it taught you, but I imagine it wasn't easy. But as you look back, like one of the things I always ask my clients is what's your unfair advantage? Like what is the thing that gives you an edge over somebody else? And for me, one of the things that's been an unfair advantage is I was born deaf in one ear. So yeah, like I'm deaf in my left ear and uh, that could have been a detriment if you think about communication and interactions with people. But I actually think it helps me tremendously today because I have to use my eyes. I have to be perceptive. Um, I, I've sort of activated other senses, kind of like daredevil, right? Like I think I've got these other senses that have helped me. As you think about your uh, background being biracial, your background being in a divorced household, um, yep. does that give you an unfair advantage when you do step into a house to recruit a kid? Um, and can you just speak on that a little bit as, as sure. now, you, as now you think about it? Yeah, I think it does. Like, I think my, my walk to college coaching, and, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about that. And I talked about that a little bit, you know, at the Coaches Inc., um, you know, symposium we did. But, you know, I have to be a chameleon in this thing. Um, you know, I, I have a very diverse background and I, I've traditionally coached at historically black institutions. So to be very honest with you, the stigmas with that is, you know, you don't want to be too black. Um, what is blackness? You know, I say that to young people all the time. You know, I'm OK. I'm OK with walking the walk because the walk that I've walked has worked for me. You know, um, but then the flip side of that is you also have to meet young people where they are and you have to get rid of stigmas. You know, um, I've done it all. You know, I, I was too uh, built uh, to be a runway model. I was, you know, cut up right to be an urban model, which I did. I did leg modeling. I did athletic modeling. I've done pr- I've done um, journalism work, which was my major, you know, and I was OK being on TV because I knew I had the gift to gab and that's what I wanted to do. God knows I went to college to want to be a veterinarian. I don't know why I wanted to do that. But, you know, I was lucky enough to have people that say, hey, you know, speaking is what you do. Go into communications kind of deal. Um, but but the qualm in all of that is you got to eventually figure out when your glass is half full or half empty. And all of these flaws to a degree ends up making me regular. Mm. And that, I think, is a key component that I have in recruitment that, we're paid recruiters. This is what we do. But eventually, minus all of that, you get to the humanistic side of it. And kids want to be, they want to feel like I can take on the world. I don't think there's a single kid that doesn't want somebody to look up to. And I take my pride in that, what recruitment, and sometimes it works for kids and sometimes it doesn't. But when people say, you say your kids play so hard, well, it's sort of kind of a mirror image of my life and what it's had to be up to this point. So I want to get, I want to start getting into high school and and times where maybe now you're with your dad, but the gift of gab, is that something that you felt like you had from a young age? Uh, Was that cultivated from mom, from dad, from your community? Um, Where did that come from? When did that come from? Just talk to me about that a little bit. You know, I did a podcast with my good friend Hernando at, at Duke and at the final four and he said, where did this come from? And I said, if you had not known me in high school, my, my middle name should have been beige. I just I was fading to black. I didn't I didn't really want to be seen. I didn't want to be heard. You know, my dad was a, a coach, a really good coach in the state that everybody knew. So I was always Mr. Kern's daughter. And I was like sort of like everybody was like, stay away from Mr. Kern's daughter, you know, so all the hindsight you go to your class reunion and people were like no you don't understand like we wanted to talk to you and I'm like eh, but you didn't you know but the, the the flip side um the flip side of that is when I decided to have a voice 
I realized that people were listening, you know, um, and I, I can actually tell you when it started uh, in high school. Um, I was a McDonald's black achievers in the state of Wisconsin. and I had to give a speech. Um, and prior to that, I had to give a speech for Herb Cole, um, you know, owner of Milwaukee Books. And I was just really good at it. I was really good at it. And people said, hey, like, like, you really should do this. You know, and I was like, ah, I stayed up all night reciting this thing and, you know, whatever. And then it just started coming easy between student government and National Honor Society and team captain. And then you realize, realize, like, I was never the most athletic, but I was always the most committed. And then people listen to you. So when you realize, like, people are going to follow you, you got to take your craft seriously. Did that commitment commitment come from dad? I, I think so. I call my dad, like, I call him the silent assassin because he's never emotional. Like ever, like I have the best of two worlds. I have the rationale from my father. I have the emotion from my mom. Like when you see me on the sideline game day, that's all mom. Um, but then the X's and O's is dad. And he, he always found a happy medium. Like I can count on one hand that probably the times in my life that I saw my dad cry, I saw him get angry or over the top emotional about anything. And so I, I think I found that balance through him because when you do, let's go back a step. Like when you do go through a divorce and when you are trying to figure yourself out and you're forced with making very serious decisions, you really never want to piss anybody off. You don't. And so I didn't want to do that in sports either. Like I, I found myself fading to black and just fitting in and, and doing enough. But then I realized like, I'm so much better than enough because I'm watching people get scholarships that have half the potential I do. And eventually you just get pissed enough that you get a voice and you just got to know what to say. So between junior and senior year in high school, a state of Wisconsin, we were, um, and I say this and I, I hate, you look at my bio and I read it and I'm like, yeah, I should probably say that stuff more often, but I'm the most decorated female athlete out of the city of Milwaukee. Um, and I get it now. Like, I really kind of get it now. Like, I sort of kind of have to carry the city of Milwaukee on my back. I'm the only female, an African-American female that's doing what I do to a city right now that's sort of in a limbo. You know, crime rates getting sort of high. People are migrating from Chicago to get rid of that big city life. And so it's got to be a face that the city has to look up to and say, hey, if you can do it, I can do it. So but I do think it comes from my dad. But I think my zeal, my zest and my fight, I think that comes from my mom. What is mom's background? Uh, tell me a little bit more about her. Yeah, so mom is, and I'm going to say this because God knows if I play this back for her one day, she wants me to. She's retiring in August, thank God. Um, but mom is from Detroit, Michigan. Um, all her brothers and sisters are from Detroit. My uncle, my aunts are, and my two aunts are still in Detroit. Um, everyone else has migrated between Atlanta and Milwaukee. Um, she's sort of kind of in the middle, the middle kid. Um, was sort of a jock growing up. Um, she went to Mumford High School in Detroit, Michigan, came to Milwaukee because at that time there was a lot of factory work in Milwaukee. Her older sister moved um, to work with Harley in A.O. Smith in Milwaukee, and so she sort of followed behind her. Um, Mom traditionally has been a legal secretary um, at a couple different firms um, in Milwaukee, but the crazy part is that's sort of my Herb Cole connection. My mom had always been a secretary for his the law firms that he worked with, and so um, right now she's tapered off a little bit. Um, it's myself. I have a 
younger sister, um, Emily. She's 10 years younger than me. And I say that because she's like, got, I mean, she's a phenomenal mom. Um, she's got four kids. Um, and my mom's enjoy being a grandmother right now. So she's counting the days until August that she can retire. And she says, you know, so I'm looking for a home right now. And it's got to at least be four bedrooms because she says I've got to at least have one for her. So that's what I'm doing. Very cool. So you, so what age do you remember having a basketball in your hand? And what other sports, if any, did you play uh, growing yeah. up? Crazy, right? So I didn't play basketball until ninth grade. Wow. And dad was a basketball coach, correct? That's he, what was. he was. Um, he coached at Milwaukee North Division High School. Um, at the time, anybody that's hearing this from Milwaukee North knows that champions came out of Milwaukee North. And this is the crazy part, right? White guy coaching in a predominantly all-black high school. Um, and so, uh, he coached there for over 30 years. And then my aunt, uh, Gisela Benning was the director of athletics at that same high school. Dad taught math. She taught history. And my first coaching job was with my dad. Um, I was a JV basketball coach. I thought I was going to go crazy. Um, and then I was the head track and field coach at that time at that same high school. Um, but yeah, that's crazy. I think back at it, I'm taping X's on the floor with cones. Like this is a basketball. This is where you stand. <laughs> but in high school, I ran track, um, played basketball and played volleyball. And, um, you know, and, and the one thing I, I told the panel and I told everybody at coaches Inc is that I did not, um, play college basketball. Um, I was an all big 10 heptathlete at Penn state university. And, um, then when I graduated, I played pro ball. <laughs> Time out. Before you go on to that ridiculousness, which we will get to, why didn't you have a basketball in your hand earlier than ninth grade if dad is this legendary basketball coach? Because at the end of the day, when I told you I was okay with being beige, I wanted to do anything and everything but what my dad did. I didn't want to be known as the daughter of. Um, I even tried cheerleading, which was the wackest thing ever for me. I was the biggest person out there. I said, look, I can't be on the bottom of pyramids. This is ridiculous. Um, volleyball, I was always really good at. And this is the crazy part. Played football, which I absolutely love. Quarterback and receiver. Um, you know, I loved it. And then I got to high school and was like, yeah, this isn't too cool. I really don't want to get hit. Time out. So, you played football with the boys? I did. So – <laughs> okay. There's so much to unpack here and we're going to have some fun. So what is that like? You're a, you're this girl who's trying to find herself, figure out yeah. racial component, figure out mom and dad component. And now yeah. you're, you're playing with boys in the most, one of the most physical sports. So this is the crazy part. And we run into this in athletics all the time with women. You realize at a young age, you have muscles. You realize at a young age, like you're built a little bit different. And you realize at a young age, like, I'm, I, I want to be good at something. I just don't really know what it is. Crazy part is when you're being raised by your dad, you sort of miss out on the feministic side of it. So I was really rough around the edges. Like, makeup, all of that, none of that started till I was 20 years old. Wow. Like, I didn't know any better. My teammates in college taught me how to be a girl. So I knew I was faster. I knew I was stronger. I just didn't want to be in my father's shadow. So I did stuff like I played club soccer, too. I did stuff that gave, sort of kind of gave me my own identity. But hindsight, looking back, that was me speaking and not speaking. I had my own voice because I didn't feel anybody was really listening. Okay. So, so but you're this, you're this superstar high school athlete. Uh, I'm assuming excelling in basketball. How yeah. do you end up at Penn State? And then you're going to have to ex explain what a heptathlete is because 
I work with a lot of different sports and a lot of different athletes, <laughs> but I don't know what that means. And I'm sure if I don't know, then the people that are going to listen to this also probably yeah. don't know. So yeah. how do you end up at Penn State for heptathlete? Uh, right. Ism or whatever it's right. called. So this is the thing. Like, So my father founded the Milwaukee Striders Track Club, which is still existing to this day. It's a USA track and field AAU affiliate. You know, you run in the summertime. And so I started running track when I was five years old, actually four years old. Um, that category is called Bantam. And um, I ran. Why? Because my dad was a track coach. My dad's retirement currently, he's a USA track and field official. So wherever I go, he's there at the at the track meet, starting something or whatever, you know. And so um, I always knew I was good running. Like I was really good running. Um, and it took me to high school where we didn't have a great team, but everybody that played basketball ran track. You know, it was that kind of deal. Um, now, mind you, I was like the sixth, seventh, eighth man on my high school basketball team. Everyone went Big Ten, you know, from freshman year on, um, you know, Wisconsin, Ohio State, Iowa, um, you know, uh, me at Penn State. But everybody was going big time. All I was was the athlete. I wasn't even a scorer. I just defended and ran for layups. So my junior year, I played AAU and some people really started to see me. So I really wanted to play basketball, but I was getting so many more letters for track and field that... I wanted to enjoy my senior year, so I signed with Penn State University early to run track. But at the time, Rainy Portland, who was at Penn State University, she knew of me and was going to give me an opportunity to play basketball. But then I just got pretty good in track and field pretty quickly. Um, and so I really went the track and field route. But we were two-time state champions in the state of Wisconsin and two-time runner-up. I mean, we had a great run. Um, you know, in my high school career. But that led me to, again, that thing, glass being half full. I was good at a lot of things, but I really wasn't great at anything. So that brought up the heptathlon. Jackie Joyner-Kersey was my idol at that time. Um, And that's, you know, seven events over two different days. So my dad started me my junior year over the summer, just trying it. Again, little black girl out of the city of Milwaukee throwing the javelin. sort of kind of worked. And so it really was my meal ticket. We didn't really know if it was a smart idea, but then I realized like, Hey, many people don't do these many things. And so at the time, um, coach Beth Sullivan, who's now the head coach at university of Tennessee and coach Carol Smith, um, I believe who's now the head coach at central Florida, they recruited me. I was actually on a visit at the university of Akron and who had the defending um, national champion in the heptathlon. And I watched Penn State women at that meet. And I can say this now. I went up to Coach Sullivan and I said, hey, I want to look how you guys look. (laughs) My dad was like, what are you doing? And I said, Dad, whatever they're doing, I want to do it. And so I went up on an official visit after I went to the University of Georgia. And I just said, hey, this is where I want home to be. So that's how I ended up at Penn State. It was sort of kind of. So now I think now it's ringing back. So. Like Jackie Joyner, is that what uh, Carl Lewis did as well? Uh, no. So no. Who's the, uh, Jesse Owens? Yeah, they were all sprinters. So right. um, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, so what it is, is it's the 100-meter hurdles, 200 meters, high jump, shot put, javelin, um, 800 meters, and I'm missing something in here. I think I, oh, long jump. So it's seven events over two different days. And then that's actually considered one running event. 
believe it or not. And then you go and do your open competition, which I ran 400 hurdles, the four by 400 meter relay. And then I triple jumped in open competition. So um, I I say this shout out to my dad because um, he really allowed me to sort of figure it out. You know, I think sometimes you see parents that are pushing their kids so hard to do what they want them to do that kids get so maxed out. They just burn out. But I got to figure it out. You know, I really got to figure it out. And um, Penn State University, and I have to say this, despite what so many people are saying right now and we're saying before, we keep running into hurdles, but we're going to keep pushing, um, was awesome to me. And I think everything I have um, really centered around the concept of we are and it's not about me. And I've taken that with me in my adult life and it's, it's worked pretty good for me. So you get there, and so now, I'm, but I'm remembering, like, it's one of the reasons Jackie Joyner Kershaw is considered the greatest athlete of all time is because she's able to perform in all of these different events uh, yeah. and not just one. Um, so that all makes sense, and, and it's almost like the timing of her doing her thing inspired you, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to be able to do all these things. Yeah. So you get to Penn State. I, I needed that. Like, I th- hindsight, looking back, I needed that. I needed that strong, black, female figure who could do it all. Like it just resonated for me, and I was like, I want to be like her. So yeah, track and field. It's interesting because I work with a lot of track and field athletes. And I think for outsiders, they don't realize how mental uh, those sports are. Because since you did a lot of different sports within track and field, yeah. Um, but one of the fascinating things that I've come to realize is like it is this. It's a timed event. It is you're sort of on an island and. Yeah. Um, there is a light that shines on you when you are performing and you have to stay in your lane or whatever you're trying to do and just be the best that you can be. Well, you know, the crazy part is um, Dave Eukelson, sports therapist at Penn State University. Uke. Uke. <laughs> I love that dude. Yeah. When I tell you, and you know what? It's crazy because I need to reach out to him because I don't even think he knows what's all manifested since then. He saved me. And I told him that before I graduated. I was an overly analytical, in my head, psych myself out athlete. And I would literally scratch jumps that I can easily do because I'm so intense and tight. And and he gave me mental exercises that I use to this day. And I I even use them with my current student athletes to sort of free your mind. And even when I was going through things personally, dating, relationship, all of this is new to me. I didn't get taught about love. I I didn't get, I didn't get taught about any of these things. He was an absolute savior. And I, I use that stuff now. And people ask me like, how did you get into basketball? Because track and field for me was too intense. I put so much pressure on myself consistently that I would actually psych myself out of stuff. But in basketball, I had to live for the moment. And that was easy for me. The, uh, so. so I have – there's three thoughts running through my head. But the first one that I'm going to jump to is uh, track, and track and field is a pain sport. Um, like you have to train right on that edge of pain and you yeah. have to perform right at that edge of – you have to push through pain. And yeah. there are certain sports – there are certain sports that are pain sports. So wrestling is a pain sport. Track and field is a pain sport. Swimming is a pain sport. Football is a pain sport. Um, and in all of those sports, outsiders don't think they're that mental because it's not golf or baseball where you're yeah. embarrassing yourself per se. But 
the pressure that those athletes put on themselves because they train so hard and they take care of their body and they, they are so perfectionist when it comes to the training that they have to fight the fear of pain, which is, is massive. And I always say the more physical something becomes, the more mental it also is. Uh, so people don't realize the physical component also impacts the mental. Uh, the second thing I want to find out is what were those exercises that you gave you that you use with your team today that you used in basketball uh, that you found helpful? If you could shed some light on that. And then the third thing I'll just touch on, for those that don't know, uh, David Eukelson's been doing sports psychology for a long time. He's established at Penn State. He's anchored at Penn State. Um, I've seen him speak at sports psychology conferences. Great guy, down to earth. Doesn't... Yeah. Not that much ego there, just like a good solid dude. And I know this because I've worked with so many pro athletes who have, uh, you know, interacted with Uke. And as soon as I find out that they go to Penn State, they usually will say to me, "Oh yeah, we had Uke at Penn State, and he's awesome." So you're he's not amazing. the only one that feels that way about him. Yeah, he's amazing. And I'm telling you, like, you know, in hindsight, you know, I need to reach out to him. I don't even have an avenue to reach out to him now, but. There's, there's two um, major exercises that he did. He, the first one was whenever you feel yourself getting to a breaking point or bringing up a memory that's going to make you go backwards, you need to find a way to resonate a red stop sign in your mind. If you have to say stop it with your mouth, if you need to say stop it with your being, it needs to stop the process of this becoming embedded in your spirit. And I do that now. I even do that coaching now on the sideline. Like if you just literally see me stand still, I am going to a moment of blanking out, which is crazy because it leads me to daily meditation that I do now and finding a place of silence and peace. And I was, oh my God, years ago, I couldn't sit for 30 seconds without fidgeting. Now it is a pregame regimen for me. I take a tea light candle with me. I've got, and they, the kids laugh at me. Sometimes I have to stay on the bus and I have to do it, whether or not I need to be in pure silence or if there's other noise and I need something to drown it out. That red stop sign, even in my personal life, when your buttons get pushed, has taught me to stop and just peace be still. It really has. The second thing is competition visualization. In track and field, there's often times that you'll sit on your lane, you'll visualize and you'll talk yourself through your race. You'll sit on the runway, you'll sit in the pit, and you'll feel and know and see each phase of what's about to occur. Basketball is difficult because it's such a elongated process. But what I've learned to do is I'll typically take my student athletes to a yoga studio or anywhere that I can lay them all out. And it might be even on the floor if we can do it. As a matter of fact, this time, well, last year I did it with my team at UAB, um, and it was something new for them. And so we will go completely silent and I'll start talking through the game. I'll start talking through plays and then I'll say, hey, so-and-so, this is the scenario. What do we do? And it allows student athletes, number one, to slow down and see things for what they are because we go a mile a minute when really we don't have to. Secondly, content knowledge, they know exactly what they're talking about. And thirdly, it validates the fact why you're there. And that's key. Like it's key. And when you can do that in basketball down to your 15th man, they know they have a purpose for being in the greater good. And sometimes that's tough with your walk-on kids who feel like you don't really know they're there, but 
we need you, kid. Like, you're here for a reason. So I can never repay you for those things. I had gone through some personal um, relationship, you know, things in college. Um, You know, Penn State. Penn State's a different beast. Nobody prepared me for guys going pro and what happens when your significant other gets drafted. I didn't know about any of those things. And we had gotten such a good relationship that he was really my sounding board. And I, it's crazy talking about this, but I take it with me now and it works tremendously. Let me uh, unpack some of that. So uh, first of all, you hit on like three of the massive mental tools uh, that we use in sports psychology. Number one is self-talk and, you know, having that stop sign and giving yourself that space and being able to talk to yourself to say, Oh, stop, slow down and give yourself some space before you make a decision irrationally. Um, that's one. Number two, meditation. Um, look, I think a lot of people think that a, if I'm not good at meditation, then I shouldn't do it. And I always say to them, that's like telling a 300 pound person that, well, they shouldn't get on a treadmill or an elliptical because it's hard. Uh, that's, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, anything that's hard is often worth doing. So why wouldn't you try to work on meditation? The other part of meditation that I think gets lost in the shuffle is everyone thinks it's about this calming down and this Zen. It's about focus. Like if you can learn how to shift from a thought to an action, whether that's a breath or a noise or a hum or whatever you're using or a mantra, you are training your brain to shift from thought to action. And meditation is just this massive tool that we can have in the toolbox to learn how to deal with self-doubt. And self-doubt does not discriminate. Like everybody has self-doubt. Like, you know, Derek Jeter, we're watching his retirement stuff. He had self-doubt. If you watch Roger Federer, he has self-doubt. If you go and watch the playoffs, you will see LeBron James have self-doubt. Like it's not something that humans can stay away from because that self-doubt helps keep us safe and protects us from predators. We're wired to have self-doubt. So meditation learn, teaches us how to deal with that thought and then the action. Um, and then the third thing is visualization, which is really a next level tool. Um, I often bring that in the fold with clients when I feel like they're looking for something to go a little bit more next level. But you hit the nail on the head, like the blue angels who fly fighter pilots, you know, hundreds of miles an hour within feet of each other, they visualize their entire um, the entire event and what that event's going to look like. The military is big on visualization. Go watch the Olympics and see how many gymnasts are using visualization. Aaron Rodgers uses visualization. I could go on and on. There's so many athletes and performers that use visualization as a tool. It absolutely is another tool in your toolbox. So you hit on three massive ones, which are self-talk, meditation, and visualization. And one of the things that I think is so important to reiterate to people that are listening is just because you're not good at it doesn't mean you can't get better at it. So like you said, for the first 30, you would do it for 30 seconds and be fidgety and be all over the place. And I hear that all the time from people that are saying, I can't do meditation or I can't do visualization because I'm not good at it. And I often think about, well, what if you approached your sport like that? What if you weren't good with your left hand and you just said, all right, well, I'm just not going to use my left hand. What will that look like? Or what if you don't have three-point range and you just say, you know what, I'm never going to work on three-point shooting. Like those things are crazy to say. And I don't know why we can give ourselves that cop out when it comes to the mental side of performance. Um, So 
Michael. I love that you shared that, and I just think it's fascinating. So you are doing track and field at Penn State. You decide not to walk on to the basketball team. You focus on track and field, but then you just slid in, slipped in this notion of, and then I went and played pro basketball. So, yeah, so this is what happened. So um, my best friend, um, Amber Sneed at the time, she played at UMass. Um, she was an all-conference player at UMass. She's like a 6-1, 3-4 combo, which at the time, again, we're talking 90s, and that was a big deal. And so she went to Germany to play. And so she tore her ACL, and she said, hey, Jess, they need somebody to come in and just finish out this season. So went in, you know, did halfway decent. But again, this people helping people. That's how this thing works came back, went to a couple pro combines, and then people said, hey, you know, I like this girl. And so my dad originally being from Germany, people thought I could get an EU passport. And that sort of kind of like went to Switzerland first, played with the Uni team there, which led to a second division team, um, Romania, Poland, and then retiring in Australia. And it's crazy, you know, it's crazy, but nothing about my life is, and I'm realizing that. I'm realizing passion and purpose. I went to... Um, here in Nashville, um, a, mega, a mega church here, Mount Zion invited me to come and I talked to Bishop and I said, you know, I realize my platform and my passion and purpose and nothing that I do is meant to be regular. Nothing I'm meant to do is on the beaten path. And instead of fight that process, I'm just accepting at this point that it's not going to be normal. It's just not like I'm looking for a house right now. And it's ridiculous. Like, my realtor is like, there's nothing in a house that you want that's normal. And I'm like, no, maybe I should just build because I don't want conventional. I don't want brown. I want something that has odd shapes, weird lines, exposed stuff, but look, feels like home. I don't even know if that can happen, but that's what I want. So, but you mentioned earlier, you're like, oh, I wasn't the best athlete, but I was really committed. But you go on to do the most athletic thing in college and then you go on to play pro basketball when you don't play D1 basketball. So you are gifted. You know that, right? Like you're gifted athletically. But it sounds like you don't perceive yourself that way. Um, and you know what? I, I, honestly, I think that comes back to, and, and I have no qualms saying it whatsoever, um, self-love. I think it comes back to that. I think growing up, um, and I love you, is important. I think growing up, hugs are important. Um, you know, I have a four year old son, um, and I'm a single parent and I try to tell him I I love him as much as possible. And eventually he'll think it's gross. I get that. Eventually he doesn't want me to hug him. I get that. But I think that validation of a kid carries it over into your adult life. And, um, you know, I've had several of my coaching friends saying, like, why do you do that? And I said, what do you mean? They're like, why do you downplay yourself? Um, and it's not intentional. I just, um, you know, the we are concept for me is like, I succeed, we all succeed. And I think my validation and my, okay, you've arrived is watching the people around me reap the benefits of my discipline. And I think that's the difference. I, I truly think that's the difference. Um, you know, we talk about athletic ability. I just think I've always been an extremely disciplined person. Um, my grandfather fought in the German war. Um, he was a good guy. I got to say that. <laughs> and, um, he was a very militant man. Nobody understood him, but me. And I think I've carried over. I was the only grandchild. Um, now this, this is something extremely interesting. So my grandfather and my grandmother migrated from Germany. My grandmother's probably five foot one. My grandfather was like five, six. 
um, my grandfather believed that German people married German people, mm. and both of his children married African American people. That's big caused, time. <laughs> which caused a huge divide. So here I am. My favorite person in the world's a racist. Yeah, holy cow! To everybody else, but me. So it was crazy because anything I needed, you know, Oma and Opa, you know, German for grandmother and grandfather. Anything I needed growing up, Opal was always there. And my grandparents were married for 72 years. And he passed away two years ago. And at his funeral, <laughs> I spoke and I told everybody, I said, everything that I'm about to say to you is going to mean a hill of beans to everybody in this room because he was a jerk to many of you, but he wasn't a jerk to me. And it was weird. Behind sight, moving forward and looking forward, we all have those areas that are safe zones for us. And I was a safe zone for my grandfather. So um, it's funny, again, how I tell you I don't walk a normal walk because I'm coaching at historically black colleges. My dad is white. My grandmother is white. And people, they come on campus and people go, who are you? And I'm like, that's my dad. Can't you tell? You know, it's, it's just the weirdest story. But it's my story. And I'm learning to really genuinely embrace that. And I kid you not, it took me to go... 30, be 30, and be a single parent to realize you don't apologize for your reality. It's not a flaw. It's someone else's motivation. Well, that's beautiful. So uh, you don't apologize for your reality. It's not a flaw. It's motivation. Um, So one of the things that I, I love about that story is I think we're in an age where we like to label and we like to evaluate people and we lose track of the descriptions. So... Dad is, or grandpa is a racist, right? That's an evaluation, right? But there's more to a human than just that. And that's not to say that that's okay. Um, And that's not to say that we should be okay with that. And look, as a country right now, we could have a whole other podcast and get into those different dynamics. Oh, oh yeah. But, But you said something earlier, which is people helping people. And like, that has been a guiding foundation. And like, we still need to see people as people. And um, just because someone doesn't necessarily necessarily see me as a person doesn't mean that I still can't see them as a person. That's my choice. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, my, my grandfather had this ridiculously stern exterior, exterior, mind you, paint a quick picture. And my grandmother is now 96 years old. Um, it is an absolute blessing. You know, I talk to her as much as I can. She just had to move out of her home, uh, which was tough, but I made sure I flew back to Milwaukee. Um, and she said, you know, I feel like I'm leaving Opa here in this house. And I said, you know, Oma, this house will be here as long as you need this house to be here. The flip side of that is hearing stories about a young woman at 16, 17, 18, who was sitting in the barracks. You got meat on one day, bread on another day, rice on one day. You saw the person you love one time a week. She would put her food in her basket, in her bike, that they're like, there's no love like that, you know? And so I now understand you've loved one man since you were 18. And I understand now that his bitterness was because he had to fight for everything. His toughness was because he carried the family on his back. It came across shrewd and angry, but the reality is the reason she loved him for 72 years is the reason I loved him as a grandfather because he was a softy on the inside. And I think that's a great message because we perceive people for what we see 
And that's why I try to tell young people so much. You're your walking resume. And the first thing that comes out your mouth is what resonates to people. So there's a responsibility to make it sit well in people's spirits. That's what my grandfather was. He wasn't an easy pill to swallow for anybody. But he ta- I tell you, he taught me two things. Steel sharpened steel. That's for sure. And secondly, he was that guy that kept money in a shoebox, but he made it work for him. And my grandmother is set up extremely well. And beknownst to her and everyone else, the monies that he consistently made, he worked at Miller Brewery. He always put away for the family. It was no one's business but his. But that shrewd, rude old guy has set our family up extremely well. And so, you know, I'm getting these life lessons now. If you just bother to listen, um, people will tell you things that change your life. There's layers. Like we are all layers and like we're so quick to judge and so quick to just say this that this that and you know we're not those that are judgmental we don't do any benefit to ourselves by then judging them Um, that's right so i think it's it's just a great story i want to just uh pull on and, and poke around the idea of you playing pro basketball again sure so um you're traveling the world. You're going to all kinds of different places. How long did you do that for? What was that experience like for you? And also, if you could shed light on the mindset that you developed uh, in college and how that impacted you um, throughout, your, throughout your pro career. Right, right. Um, I played professional basketball for about six, seven years. Um, let me say this to any young women that are looking to do it. It's not the easiest journey. Um, you know, I was in Romania, an extra-communist country. You know, um, that's difficult. It comes with its qualms. You know, you, you've got humble livings. Um, you know, we stayed in Hotel Olympia. Um, you know, the Olympic Stadium was right down the road from us. We would go to football games, um, you know, but there were things that came with that. I didn't look like anybody else, too. So I needed to be protected, you know, when I went out. Um, Switzerland was fantastic. Um, Zurich was great. Um let me see. Uh, Poland, Leszno Poland was great. I got to travel to see a lot of my friends that were playing in Czech Republic. Very, very good basketball for the record. Um, but again, I'm not I'm not becoming a millionaire in any of this, you know, for the record. Um, and then in Australia, I was able to play in the top league. I played um, in the mainland and I also played in a B league in Tasmania, which is 10 years behind civilization for the record. Um, but it was a great experience and it taught me humility if I didn't already know that. Because when you go to another country and you don't necessarily speak the language, body language, decorum and etiquette is everything. And um, you really have to learn to be the people's people person like you really, really do. You have to learn to um, I ended up always doing camps at elementary schools and doing as many media things because we win. You're the hero. And you know this in athletics. We lose. Well, why did we need to bring in an American and a local could have done the same thing? So you've got to have a tough skin. But, man, you can make it work for you and see the world and experience things that you probably could have, you know, never experienced otherwise. So for that. Um, I'm very grateful. Um, you, know, you know what you have, Jess, and it goes back to what you are talking about earlier about being downplaying maybe your success or how you see yourself or being humble. Um, I, I truly believe this. Uh, you know, the word humble gets thrown around a lot, uh, and I don't think people necessarily are humble that say that they're humble. But I think I what, you, what you have, which is what I heard at the conference that we were at, is this combination of I'm humble enough to prepare, but I'm confident enough to perform. And I think we 
don't always talk about, and I've talked about in these podcasts with other guests, is what is your mindset for preparation and what is your mindset for performance? So the visualization, the meditation, um, the stop, the putting that in play for you, you have to be humble. Going seeing Uke, you have to be humble, but you also have to have this desire to be great. You have to be a bit neurotic. You have to uh, like just constantly... <laughs> be a perfectionist, right? Like those things, the attention to detail, discipline is the word you said. But I would imagine the moment you stepped on the court to play professionally, you had a little narcissism. You had yes. this belief in yourself. You, you, you weren't worried about how someone looked at you or the way they thought about you. It was, F it, I'm going to go play. And you lost your, you lost, lost your self-conscious in that. And that's why you have to love what you do. You know, yeah. I, it kills me, you know, and again, when I do other speaking engagements and I say, if you don't go to work and you clock in every single day and you don't love what you do, who in the world would get up every day, do the exact same thing and hate it? Yeah. That's, well, that's insane. It's passion, passion plus purpose, right? And, and when we have passion and purpose, you, you, that doesn't have a shelf life. Like that doesn't expire. Um, right. But you know what does expire? Negative thoughts, anxiety, oh, yeah. feelings, um, embarrassment, um, excitement, like feelings and thoughts, those all have a shelf life, but passion and purpose, that's what keeps you going. So anytime I have an athlete who has some nervousness or anxiety, I say, all right, well, what's your purpose and are you passionate about this? And if you go towards the purpose and passion, that's not going to expire. That can keep you, you know, going forward. The other stuff that comes and goes, that's just the roller coaster ride. But if you have passion and purpose, it sounds like your dad had passion and purpose. It sounds like your mom had passion and purpose. It sounds like grandpa had passion and purpose. Um, and that, that's, you know, very clear for you. And if you can play with that, if you can perform with that, then that can help you overcome the other things that are going to come and go. And I think, I think you have to be okay. You have to really be okay with asking for help. You do. I will say this, hands down, in the African-American community, we're not okay saying that we need help. You know, we're not okay with airing our dirty laundry. Or are you kidding me? A cycle continues regardless of what it is. It could be family-wise, athletically, whatever. A cycle continues until somebody has the balls, for lack of a better word, to break it. And that's just the reality of it. Um, and again, I'm, we're very big on my staff here in my program about owning your mess. If there's a brick wall standing in front of you and you know you got to get to the other side and you just can't get through it, well, dang it, climb over it. But you got to find a way to break that cycle um, and then have a responsibility for the things in which you do and you say. Um, what we do is very vain. Athletics is very vain. It is what people see. It's what you think people want to see. People ask me all the time, how the heck did you get to Tennessee State University? I said over a cup of coffee. That was it. And that's not a lie. You know, it was good old conversation. And despite what people think, there are a lot of good people in the world who want to do good. Um, and those people will find each other. And that's just not by chance. It, two, it happens. Two, Law of attraction. Two yeah. things. Uh, response, ability. Like you break that word into two forms. Response, ability. And uh, I like to me, responsibility is all about what is your response and what is your ability to respond. Um, and when you have that, that's massive. And the second thing you just hit on, I literally was thinking about today. I was, I was walking to work and on my work, on my walk, I have two young kids and I was thinking about how everyone thinks about, oh, your kids, they're going to come into a tough life. Life's tough. Like, you know, it's difficult. Life's hard. And I was thinking on my walk, I was like, yeah, 
there, look, no one's going to say it's all easy all the time, but I was just, on my walk, I was thinking like, but there's also great people. And I hope my kids realize like, sure, life's tough, but I think most people have more good than bad. And I think right. most of our society is, is good than bad. And even though our, our media and our news are not designed that way, um, you know, I, I am a naive optimist and it gets me in trouble sometimes. But for the most part, you know, you treat people as people, uh, sure. it'll work out for you. And I, I love that you talked about just over a cup of coffee, you develop the relationship and, and then they see you as you and they're hiring the person. You know, a coach is a person, as you've talked about, whose job it is to help people get from where they are to where they want to go. And, right. you know, you're gonna, that's going to be much more about the human than anything else. Um, but I love that you brought that up because I, I think it gets lost sometimes in our day-to-day because we are inundated with negativity. And, um, sure. you know, so you need to be able to also acknowledge, like, no, people are mostly good. Like, the one thing I talk to my clients about is, like, have you ever had a roommate? And, you know, nobody loves everything about their roommate. But there's probably one thing that you can appreciate about that person. Um, And they may have been the worst roommate of your life, but there's probably one thing you said, you know what, they actually did this well. Because you're living with them every day. And when you live with someone and spend that much time, yeah, you're going to see their flaws, but you're also going to see some of their strengths. And we all have weaknesses and we all have strengths. None of us are perfect. um, And that's sort of the way we go through life. Um, so take me to coaching um, and sort of wrap up. You, you, so you're playing overseas for seven years. Uh, why do you decide to get into coaching? How do you decide that? And and walk me through well, my, that process. My, my last year, um, I, I started being player coach, um, which I, I liked it. Like, I really liked it a lot. I realized that I had a basketball eye. Um, I could explain things a little better um, than, than what my coaches could at the time. And I had a, a way of my teammates responding to me. Um, and so I, I've done every job in this business. Um, I was a graduate assistant at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff and moved up that chain pretty quickly. Then I went to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, from there, I went to Lincoln University of Pennsylvania for four years, um, Furman University for one year, Mississippi Valley State University for one year. Jesus, Jessica, I moved around. And now hopefully I am finding a home here in Nashville Um, But why coaching for me? Because it was seamless. It was the smooth transition. Um, I was afforded an opportunity. Um, And again, I tell young coaches all the time, if you're looking to get into this thing to be wealthy financially, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. But if you do things the right way and you do right things by right people, everything will come full circle. And I think I'm living that right now. Um, Last time we met, I couldn't have told you I'd be here right now. But it's, it's amazing. And I mean, I'm so excited. And for a person like me to be lack of words, sometimes it's sort of kind of crazy. And I just, I really thank God for everything he's put in front of me. You said earlier that you were looking at broadcast journalism or communications. Why coach instead of go that route? Um, what draws you to coaching that, that communications doesn't? Um, you know what? I just, I really was one of these people, like we talked about with track and field. I was good at a lot of things and I wanted to master one thing. You know, um, I had my hand in so many different pots. So for me, I tell everybody, I'm not a lifer in this. You won't catch me doing this until I'm 70 years old. Cause I want to watch my kid grow. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm praying this is a very seamless Avenue to me being able to get on air. Um, and I know that business just like this business has its ins and its outs. Um, but I, I, to be very candid and I hope not to sound too forward. I just feel like my perspective needs to be seen and shown. There's a lot of women out there with unconventional backgrounds 
um, that deserve a voice. Um, but you also need somebody that understands their craft. And so I love it. Um, I love on air work, not so much print. That was a different beast for me. Uh, but I think that's in my future um, when coaching is eventually over for me. So we've hit on, we sort of hit on race. We've hit on class. Um, you know, we've hit on some different things, but your, your, your family background. And then you just sort of ramped up this idea of being a woman um, and uh, how that matters to you and, and sort yeah. of being different. Just talk about what it's like to be a woman because look, the, the statistics on male coaches in NCAA female sports is unbelievable. It's pretty staggering. And people, I don't think people really are aware of what's going on there, um, but it's a fascinating thing. But then you also are having uh, a lot of athletic directors now become, there's a lot more female people in yeah. the administration. So there is this different dynamic, but um, look, I mean, in your sport, the guy, you know, is Gino. And, you know, before that, it was certainly Pat. Um, right. But, you know, if you think about women's basketball, you think about coaches today, you think of Gino. And that doesn't mean that there yeah. aren't others that are, you know, elite. I'm in Maryland, so we know about Brenda Freeze. Um, right. But, you know, I, I'm just curious about what it means for you to be a female coaching females. Well, you know what? I think my take on it is a little difficult, different than what you'd probably hear at a, at a typical Final Four roundtable. Um, that's, again, a shameless plug. like to be on one of those. Um, the flip side of that is, is that um, I was raised, in essence, by women that weren't family. And that kept me in athletics. Um, women in athletics taught me how to be feminine, how to be a female, and how to be masculine at the same time. And I think that's needed. If you notice, a lot of male head coaches have to have female heavy assistant coaches because it keeps the thing going. That's just the reality of it. Um, young women now are coming to you in college and they're questioning everything about themselves. This is not just a talk about confidence. This is a question of who am I? What do I want to be? I'm dibbling with this. I'm dabbling with that. They need mentorship. They need guidance. So the reality is, yes, there is a shortage of women in female athletics. And again, I have no qualms saying it at all. It is needed. There are more females needed in female athletics. Why? The reality of it, I was a young girl raised by a guy. There are just some things a man just doesn't know. That's just the truth of it when it comes to females and vice versa. Um, the, the, the flip side, um, you know, of that is that we also, as women have to do our due diligence and understanding that sometimes it isn't an even playing field, but you got to do whatever you got to do to put your boots up to the line and show that you can stop with the big dogs. That's when you have to perfect your craft. And so, um, you know, I would love to see more females in female athletics. And I'll say this too. I would like to see less men coming from the men's side to the women's side because they weren't successful on the men's side. Mm. We've got to do a better job at not doing that. Recycling is recycling no matter how you call it. So I'd like to see more women on the women's side. I think it's needed. The great part is you're seeing a lot more female commentators commentate women's and men's sports. So we're getting a voice out there, which yeah, is fun. You just completely transitioned to where I was going to go. I'm reading Jay Billis's book and he talks about Doris Burke and awesome. um, like Doris Burke. When I watch NBA games, I'm always like Doris Burke knows her shit. Like she is freaking awesome. But I didn't know her story. And um, in his book, he really highlights Doris as someone who's his book is called toughness. And he talks about Doris as being someone who's tough. And Doris sort of says like, you know, 
I know that I'm a female and I know what I'm doing is somewhat groundbreaking, even though she doesn't look at it that way. Um, and she, he mentions, he tells her story throughout the book and how tough she is because she does the NBA, she does NCA men's, she does NCA women's and she does WNBA and yeah. the bandwidth that she has to have in order to do all four of those and do them really well is really difficult. And she's someone who I've always had immense respect for because she does a really good job. Um, it's she not does. about what she looks like. It's not about, it's just about her content and her quality. Right. And I just think she is a role model. Uh, I have a young daughter and like, those are the types of people where I'm just like, man, like that is, that's a special woman. And, uh, to your point, like, I think what she's doing, um, is just special and it's unordinary. It's, it's irregular. And people, people like her, people like Nancy Lieberman, and she probably doesn't even remember this in 2007 when I was working her summer camps, um, sitting down and, and talking to me about, if you really want to be in this business, this is the stuff you have to do. And it being consistent, that you're watching it. It's a visual representation of what you want to be, how you want to be. That's amazing. Like, it's really amazing. And it's fun to, again, see women who know their stuff. Um, and it's fun. And, and I'm telling you, God, within the next few years, think about the next 10 years with women, you know, kicking down walls in athletics. It's sort of kind of crazy. Um, and again, you've got to have women who know their stuff. you got women NFL officials. You know, when did you foresee that happening? But there are women who have a proven track record of knowing their stuff, women in the NBA, officiating in the NBA. It's a really big deal. Um, but there's a responsibility with it, you is know. That, and you, Is that driving you? Is there is there a piece of you that feels um, an extra oomph because of uh, you're, you're mixed? Uh, you're from Milwaukee? Like you said earlier, like I feel like I'm carrying Milwaukee on my back. Um, yeah. you're from a, a city that, um, I've been to Milwaukee, um, to yeah. say that it's Chicago's, uh, stepsister is, is probably an go. understatement. Um, yeah. so I, I hear all these things. Do you consider yourself to be an underdog? Do you, how do you look at yourself as you think about your identity? You know what? Um, for, for me, I think I've always considered myself an underdog to a degree, um, and only from the sense of I never walk the same walk as anybody else. I can't go into an interview and said, I played at X, Y, and Z and I'm a WNBA X, Y, and Z. Cause I'm not, um, you know, but again, we've got a track record of turning programs around and that that's what I do. And I'm okay with that. Originally I thought like, Jesus, I keep taking over programs that, you know, you've got to turn around, but you know, why not me? You know, it's one of those kind of situations, but I do want to be groundbreaking. I do. I've always wanted to be groundbreaking. Um, I'll tell you this and not too many people know this and people will now. My nickname in high school was the golden child and I laughed at it, but I get it. Like, I really get it. You know, I know that I'm deemed to do something special in this and I'm going to take this ride wherever God's taken me. Um, and I'm going to try to do my absolute best in the process process, but more importantly, talk about things coming full circle. Um, not in my wildest dreams that I assume or think that I was going to be a single parent. Um, my son has two phenomenal parents that, that do very well by him. Sometimes it's just not in the cards for people, but it is, my key goal in life for him to have a, a role model, female or male, which just happens to be me, that shows him that through good old blue collar, getting yourself dirty, hard work, it can be done and you can reap the benefits of your labor. And that's really it. Is It's not rocket science and there's no huge equation to this. We want to we want to be able to live comfortably. We want to be able to live a good life, but pray that I pass a legacy to my child that hard work, 
doing the right things by people and walking by faith is, is key to success. So with that, uh, I want to end our conversation. But before we do, uh, if people want to follow you, uh, learn more about what you're doing and what you're up to, where can they do that? And, and why don't you just share sure. that? So my Twitter handle is at coach underscore Jay Kern. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Um, you can also follow me at Tennessee State Athletics. We have several social media handles, and I, I tend to um, double over with, with athletics and what they do. Um, and that's really about it. Um, I don't have a lot of social media and I'm going to tell you why. Um, sometimes it gets a little out of control and I like to keep my family safe. However, this Twitter thing is getting a little crazy. And, um, I have so many friends in the business that are pushing me over the Instagram ah, threshold. So I might go there. Um, but the flip side is any support. I would love the feedback. I'm starting to blog a little bit on um, Twitter um, through, you know, just working out and the balance between being physical, physically fit and taking care of your spirit. So I would love to see what you guys have to say. So at coach underscore Jay Kern on Twitter. Awesome. So coach, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, we briefly, I think, crossed paths at the Coaches Inc. conference. Um, and as I said to you, I was just blown away by your way with words and uh, your ability to connect concepts and ideas and have clarity around how you see the world. And I think that is a gift, um, but it's also something that I think you've harnessed and worked on and just been really thoughtful. And now I know also you have a connection to, to Coach Uke, which I'll send, I'll send you his email. I, I don't know him directly, but I'm on a listserv where I know he responds. So I'll send you his email so you can reach out yeah, to him. Yeah, that would be phenomenal. That's the least I can do. I owe that man so much. And I just, I really want to just tell him thank you. Well, with that, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Beyond the Surface podcast. Really appreciate you coming on. And hopefully we will uh, talk again real soon. Okay, Coach? All right, cool. Sounds good. See you later.